Uh, welcome everyone to the Museum of London. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Joe Kane to you this lunchtime. His talk, Dinosaurs in Crystal Palace Park, is the first of a series of four lectures in June. They are part of UCL's Lunch Hour Lectures on Tour to the Museum of London and the Museum of London Docklands, and we're, we're really pleased to have them here. Joe Kane is Professor of History and Philosophy of Biology and Head of the UCL's Department of Science and Technology Studies. He's an expert in the history of evolutionary biology, especially Darwin and Darwinism. And you'll find that he has an incredible wide range of, in, of research interests and activities if you visit his UCL web profile pages. His uh, walking tours, um, this was to, for me anyway, his walking tours sounded particularly engaging and fun. And I'd like to go on one if you, next time you're doing one of them. Uh, as I consider myself as a South Londoner, having lived close to Peckham Rye for over 25 years, the open spaces and parks are one of the main attractions of living south of the river. Crystal Palace Park is just one of these special open spaces. Many children and adults have enjoyed and played alongside the dinosaurs in Crystal Palace, but perhaps not really known that much about them or how they were created. When I was putting on the Dickens exhibition at the end of 2011, I was fortunate in being able to borrow the manuscript of Bleak House from the V&A and just had to display that first page with its famous description of London's fog. Within it, suddenly, Dickens conjures up an image of a megalosaurus, 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Hoban Hill. I never had time to investigate where this idea came from and what a mid-Victorian would have known about megalosauruses. Anyway, I'm sure that we're going to learn much about these creatures today. So I'd like to hand over to Joe Kane for his lecture, Dinosaurs in Crystal Palace Park. Well, thanks everybody for coming. It's a beautiful day outside. What on earth are you doing in a dark room? Shame on you. The, uh, my wife is at home, uh, I think, watching on this, and so if you could all just please give a yell so she knows I'm not in the room talking to myself. So, so on, on three, you can just say, hi, Joe's wife. One, two, three. Hi, see? <laughs> it's a bit of a bet to see what was going to go on. But anyway, well, thanks for coming. I really, really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come out, and uh, let us press on quickly. You're going to learn three things today, not 123, but three things today, hopefully, and uh, that's how I'm going to divide my talk, and that's how we're going to proceed. So, Crystal Palace. There are two Crystal Palaces, and if you're confused, there's the one in, in central London, 1851, the Great Exhibition, and that's the one that starts the, the story that I won't talk about today, but that's the one who starts the story of the, of the Great Exhibition. So 1851, uh, uh, we're in Hyde Park, or, or, or now Kensington Park, and uh, it's, it's the story that people know so well. In fact, if you, if you walk around the exhibition here in the Museum of London, you'll certainly see some great stuff put out on, on display for this exhibition. 
Now, this was meant to be a one-off, one-year enterprise. It was meant to be a uh, think-in-your-mind, an international trade exhibition. And you've got pretty much what the 1851 uh, Great Exhibition was all about. The Crystal Palace is, is, the, is the glass building, of course, but inside an international trade show with exhibits from all, diff all kinds of different countries showing off their high-tech material or, their, or, or things of great cultural value. That's 1851. This exhibition was so... Impressive. It was so exciting. It caught the spirit of the nation in such a way that people started to think, well, what are we going to do with this now that it's, now that it's coming to an end? Uh, it's surely too good to let go. So uh, uh, to make a very long story short, somebody cooks up a plan. Hey, we could, we could put this exhibition on somewhere else in perpetuity. Let's do that. And so a, a plan was cooked up to buy the building, uh, take it apart, move it somewhere else, put it back up again, and put on the show all over uh, again, uh, do something with the, the material. Um, and that is the second Crystal Palace. So here we are, 1851 turns into 1854. The Great Exhibition is over. The building's been packed up. A lot of the exhibits went home. A lot of the national displays from Canada and New Zealand, from elsewhere in the world, were packed up or sold off or gone. And so the Crystal Palace Company, the outfit bought to finance this whole deal, they needed to do something else. So they packed up the building, moved it off to, to a, a, a countryside space in South London um, near Sydenham and Adderley and Norwood, part of the commuter belt in South London, and, and uh, bought, the, bought a, a, a field, I guess is the best way to say it, 200 acres or so, and decided to make it a pleasure park. What's the difference between 1851 and 1854, the biggest difference is, well, if you think of 1851 as an international trade fair, a world's fair, as it, as it were, 1854 is more like Disneyland. It's more like Euro Disney. It's, a, it's a, quite a different concept than what was in 1851. So here we are, 1854, uh, in South London, in Sydenham, off we go. Now, if you're a fan of this particular story of 1854 of Sydenham, you'll, you'll be very proud to say that when the glass house was moved, it got slightly bigger, it got slightly longer, it got slightly deeper, got slightly higher. And so you're looking at a glass house in, now in Crystal Palace, a glass house at the top of the hill, 500 meters roughly long, 500 meters. It's a shopping center size on our scale, um, an enormous glass house. Now, I'll get to the dinosaurs, but I will first just say a couple of things about the a glass house. The Crystal Palace in Glass House, or the, the Glass House in Crystal Palace, think of it as a, as a Disneyland exhibition trying to mimic something like the British Museum. Inside the Glass House are various galleries. There's galleries like at the British Museum. There, there's a Egyptian gallery and a Byzantium gallery and a medieval gallery and so on. And they're, and they're filled with things like this, which are copies of things that you might see at the British Museum. Nice copies, expensive copies, but copies nevertheless. And so here we are in a glass building 
um, the size of a modern shopping mall in South London, walking around exhibitions that are galleries like what's, ha what's happening in Central London. It's a fascinating enterprise, the glass house that is Crystal Palace. And you can see here the sculpture, the sculpture gallery. You can see a couple of things that made Crystal Palace famous. The, there's a lot of things to see. They're all copies, um, elegant displays. In, in one sense, the, wood, the wooden floors, we'll come back to because you know what happens. Um, the wooden floors, that exhibition is something that really is the focal point of the enterprise in Crystal Palace. Why am I telling you about this stuff when we're supposed to be talking about the dinosaurs? Because it helps understand what the dinosaurs are doing in Crystal Palace Park. What's the, their function? The real attraction is to get you into the glass house so that you can see things there and, um, uh, and well, just enjoy that space. If you happen to meander out into the park and then down the hill, down towards the dinosaurs, then you can see the dinosaurs. But we'll get to that in just a minute. The Crystal Palace, the, the glass house, Here's the problem with an exhibition like this one is, you know, we would, we would all go to see it. We'd buy our tickets, we'd, we'd, we'd spend a day, and we'd really enjoy the exhibition. The problem for the company that owns the park, though, is they need you to come back. And to get you to return year after year after year, that's a problem that every museum has. It's a problem that every exhibition has. It's a problem that every curator struggles with. And the same is true in Sydenham in the glass house that, that is the Crystal Palace Park, that they constantly churn over new exhibitions. And I will, I will show you a, a one or two examples of that as we go. Here's an example of, of, the, of the glass house being used and reused. You're in the medieval gallery, believe it or not, and what are those dogs doing there? It's a dog show. Um, in, in order to make the space profitable, I guess, in, in order to use and reuse the space to get people like us back again and again and again, uh, the uh, dog show like this is a great example of a, of a particular activity. Now, I show you this picture partly because I want you to see a dog show and I want you to see other uses, but I bet you that your attention is drawn to the floor and your attention is drawn to the, how scuffy and wooden and dirty the floor looks. And this is a really important photograph because it's one of the last photographs of the glass house in Crystal Palace because this is what happens next. And as everybody knows, in, in 1936, in November, the Crystal Palace glass house burned down. And that was the end. There were many fires, about one major fire a decade in the glass house, and a wing or so would be burned down, rebuilt with a new style exhibition, a, a, a new concept of dis display out, and so on. But in the 1930s, the last of the fires uh, burnt the whole, more or less the whole structure down, and that was finished for the glass house. If you go to Crystal Palace today, Crystal Palace, it's on a beautiful week like this week, and the weekend is supposed to be beautiful too. So if you're here in the audience and you're wondering what to do on Saturday or Sunday, go down to Crystal Palace. Uh, and you'll, if you go down there, you'll see a scene much like this, the terraces. If you've got the postcard that you've got when you, when you walked in, you'll see the terraces up by the glass house. And I'll be referring to that postcard in just a bit. But the terraces here are, this is exactly what you'd see with the sphinxes and other things there, the, the uh, caravan park, and so on. 
Now, this is the postcard. If you're, if you're watching online, you're missing the super treat, which is everybody got a free postcard of, of this particular image. And I love this picture so much. We'll refer to it a couple of times in the, in the talk today. And uh, the, the thing that I think everybody's attention is drawn to, besides the dinosaurs, which we'll get to, I promise, if, uh, if, you, if you look up the hill to the glass house, you'll, you'll certainly see the, the great glass house, 500 meters or so, uh, long, uh, about 100 meters deep, and um, uh, about 160 feet high. So, so no small potatoes. The thing that's really worth noticing on the postcard, and this sounds so daft, but academics, academic historians who don't go visit the place where a history happened, they tend to miss this point. The, the glass house is on top of the hill, it's on top of the hill, and you can see it in your postcard. It's on the top of the hill. We could easily have seen it from here. We could easily have seen it. And of course, that magnifies the great fire, the fire in, in 1936 when the, when the glass house burned down, a huge fire on top of the hill. You're gonna see everywhere across London, you're gonna see that taking place. Now I show you this picture because, uh, again, we're, we're going to get to the dinosaurs, but I wanted to emphasize three points today, and one is about the glass house. Now the glass house is an exhibition, think museum, but don't think, don't think, oh this is, I hate to say this word, don't think proper museum with, with genuine artifacts like the Museum of London. Think a slightly cheesier version of that with, with copies of stuff there where people are going more to, well, I'm not quite sure why people are going, but anyway. So the glass house is filled with, the glass house is filled with those exhibitions and regional trade shows. It's up on top of a hill. The other thing I want you to notice in this postcard, and you'll see it straight away when I show you this photograph of the same space. You see the glass house, you see the water tower, but do you see the fountains? You see the fountains. Now look at, back at your postcard and look at the fountains. The fountains, the Crystal Palace and Park. Don't let the glass house distract you from what's going on in this 200 acre green space. The glass house is part of the story. Sure, people want you to go into the glass house, and let's face it, a lot of lousy London weather days, you'd, you'd be very happy inside the glass house. But the Crystal Palace and Park are so important to the story. The, the park is filled with fountains. The great Joseph Paxton, the landscaper, wanted fountains. I want more fountains in the Crystal Palace Park than are at Versailles, he said. 22,000 fountainheads. 22,000 fountainheads. Now, when they counted, I think they cheated because somewhere along here, there's a bunch of little fountains, fountainheads. So I think they count too. And, uh, but 20, I want more than Versailles, Paxton said. And the Crystal Palace and Park, the exhibition that is Crystal Palace, the, the pleasure park, the fun fair, the whole activity that you'd experience in a day, it's not just the glass house. There's so much more. Dinosaurs are part of that story. So up at the top of the hill, you've got the glass house, but you also have the water fountain, or the water fountains, and you also have the water towers, the conical image that you've got in the center of the picture. That's the, that's the lasting water tower. If you've got the postcard, those water that water tower hasn't yet been built. 
In fact, the first generation of water towers are what you see in this, in this postcard to either side of the glass house. And I will use this fancy laser pointer here. And here, you'll see it on your postcard. Those are terrible water towers because once you fill them up with water, the bottoms burst. And they no longer hold water. So, so the ever the clever entrepreneurs, the Crystal Palace Company, what they did was they brought in the great Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And Brunel didn't do anything small, did he? He made and he made fantastic water towers uh, here. And those water towers, 200 feet high, which is fantastic if you want fountains because you can get as much water pressure into a fountain as you put water into the tower. So you'll see on your postcard, you'll see fountains, enormous fountains. The, the area of the big fountain on the left-hand side of the picture, that's now a, a football pitch. That, that now is a whole football pitch in the, in, the, in the Crystal Palace Stadium. That's an enormous amount of water and water pressure. Great gushing fountains in the park that is Crystal Palace. Now, this has to do with the dinosaurs. This gets us to the dinosaurs. And uh, because water is, water, is the reason why the, water is the reason why the dinosaurs are in the park in the first place. Here's an aerial photograph of, of Crystal Palace and park uh, done in the 20th century when they're making a new attraction and a new attraction and a new attraction every year. We'll skip past this to get, to get you to the dinosaurs. Um, Key to this picture, key to that postcard you've got right in front of you, is not just the glass house with the water towers of whatever iteration, but the water fountains, I want you to see that, but also the hill that is Crystal Palace, the joy, and I have to say for a man of my physical condition, the pain of Crystal Palace is the hill, up and down, up and down. It's really good for you, my wife who's sitting at home will say, it's really good for me to be trucking around uh, Crystal Palace, but think about it this way. If you've got the glass house with the water towers, gushing out of the water towers is the water through the pipes up to the fountains, whoosh, they go up through the fountains and down again, they move through. Uh, they, they move from the top of the hill, through the fountains, down to the next layer, through more fountains, down to the next layer, and more fountains. So, Crystal Palace, those twenty-two thousand heads of fountains of this water gushing through. Well, the water's got to go somewhere, and where does it go? It goes to the bottom of the hill, and if you go to Crystal Palace, you'll see the, a boating lake, and you'll see what's called a tidal lake. And that's where the dinosaurs are located. Here's what I think happened with the dinosaurs in Crystal Palace. And that is, the Crystal Palace Company made a pleasure park. And they put the glass house at the top of the hill. And the, your whole attention for the park is get to the top of the hill and, and interact with the amusements that are at the top of the hill. The problem is they bought a park that was kind of just too big. And in order to make the park work as an enterprise, they needed to get us to other bits of the 200-acre space. There's only so many fields you can make. There's only so much of a cricket pitch you can have. There was a rifle range and an archery range, and there were other things too. But in order to use the whole bit of the park, we as meandering human beings... And those of you who are romantic couples meandering through parts of the park to get up to the nonsense that you romantic couples get up to. They wanted to provide a destination. And so the dinosaurs in Crystal Palace, they live in the park, but they live in the bottom corner 
of the park. And I'm going to say this with all the love in my heart, that it's kind of the crappy corner of the park. It's, it's kind of the worst bit of the park. It's the soggy, dark corner of the park. And I think what happened was the, the designers of the space said, right, what we need to do is we have to make an attraction there. Okay, fine. So uh, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, famous sculptor, gets, gets hired to create a few interesting statues in this space. Well, I won't talk about the process of, of Waterhouse Hawkins deciding what he wants to do, but let me tell you about Waterhouse Hawkins. He is no cheap designer. He's a celebrity scientific illustrator in the 1850s. He is the person you go when you want the very best. And so the Crystal Palace Company wanting celebrities like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, like Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, to get involved in their commercial enterprise. Waterhouse Hawkins, this is one of his, one of his famous sketches. I just put it up to show you. Gosh, this guy's pretty darn good. Um, and if you wanted the best, you got Waterhouse Hawkins. Another example of Waterhouse Hawkins illustrations, this is from the 1830s. Um, I had to slip Darwin in here somewhere. Um, this is an illustration in, in Darwin's um, uh, illustrations from his Beagle Voyage. It's a Galapagos um, iguana. And the iguana here is, well, Darwin had enough money to buy the very best, to get the best talent to illustrate a book he thought was one of the most important things in his career. And so he got Waterhouse Hawkins to do it. So that's a connection to Darwin, job done. Waterhouse Hawkins was no fool. He was a brilliant promoter of his own work. He and the Crystal Palace Company promoted the dinosaurs as they would anything else in the lead up to the opening of the park in 1854. Um, on New Year's Eve, just, be uh, just before the, the spring, um, New Year's Eve, 1853, turning into 1854, this famous scene takes place. Now, this is an illustration. It's not a photograph. And a lot of historians like me have spent an awful lot of time trying to count how many men can you fit into an iguanodon. And I have to confess, it is quite the waste of time because, um, well, I don't want to get into the calculation now, but you know, men with a, a little bit of port, God knows what happened on this particular event. But this, but this uh, publicity image, I suppose is the way to say it, uh, came out after, after the New Year's in the London Illustrated News, and it has really seared into people's minds some of the story around the dinosaurs. Now, down to the dinosaurs. Now, I told you I want you to remember three things uh, for my talk. One is about the glass house and the glass house only being part of the exhibition. The second thing I want you to remember is about the park itself. There is a park. There is a park there that's part of the attraction. One of the big things in the park you see on your postcard are the fountains. The fountains are an enormous part, lost part of the park. Lost and I'd say forgotten part of the park. The third bit are the dinosaurs. So let's go off to the dinosaurs. Well, now before, let's go off and talk about the dinosaurs. Now, before I go on, does, let, let me just ask you guys here in the audience about uh, who's been to Crystal Palace, who's been and seen the dinosaurs. Oh, wow. Okay. Excellent. So, so if you're at home, I'd say, what, what did you reckon, about 80%, 90%? Well done us, eh? Yes. And I just count the number of people at home, so there you go. I know my wife, so that's one. Well done. Well done her. Okay, so Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace dinosaurs. 
I want you to remember, everything's in threes with me, so I want you to remember three things about the dinosaurs too. Now, when you look at the dinosaurs, Waterhouse Hawkins, the sculptor, he um, didn't just want to make pretty sculptures. He wanted you to remember a couple of very specific things. And he was keying into a certain kind of entertainment, Victorian-style entertainment. There's three big ideas he wanted to get across. And the first big idea is the feeling that everybody feels when they go and look at the dinosaurs today. And that simply is just, wow. Wow, look at those things, wow. I mean, I go to the park um, uh, a lot, and every time I go past the dinosaurs, there's always a little kid and an adult who just look at it and go, wow, look! And that's great. Look, his, uh, Waterhouse Hawkins' accomplishment has really hit home 160 years later. Wow, look. And the park is rich with people who love looking at these things. The iguanodon in the front foreground, the hyliosaurus in the background, some pterodactyls, fantastic with their beaks, real teeth, not real teeth, but real spiky bits in the, in the, um, in the sculpting. This is serious sculpting. Waterhouse Hawkins didn't mess around. He spent an awful lot of time working through the technical manuals, talking to the paleontologists and geologists, thinking hard about the anatomical features that he was displaying. And the idea of accuracy is so important. First he would sketch, and then he would model, and he would show to the experts. And they would argue about whether the size was right, or the bits, are the bits in the right proportion, are the, are the scales the right kind of scales, and so on. And so these are meant to be full-size, three-dimensional, um, well, life-size, uh, portrayed with flesh-on-the-bone organisms, um, Waterhouse Hawkins wasn't fooling around. Wow. You go there today, and even these, these teleosaurs, these crocodile-like things, they just knock your attention out. The business end, the teeth end, is just so realistic. And that's important to Waterhouse Hawkins. Plesiosaur as well. So I said there's three things about Waterhouse Hawkins, about, about the Crystal Palace dinosaurs I want you to remember. And one is just, wow. It fits into a, a Victorian style of entertainment about sensationalism, about getting your attention. And there's no doubt if Dickens is going to talk about the Megalosaurus, if he's going to talk about that in, in a popular book, of course everybody's going to think about that. They embed in the imagination in a very special way. But back to that postcard that you've got in front of you. Now, if you look at the postcard, you'll certainly see the glass house. You'll certainly see the fountains. Now you'll see the hill about, uh, about which Crystal Palace, on which Crystal Palace is built. You see how the water form, uh, uh, flows down into the tidal pool in the boating lake. You certainly have noticed the dinosaurs, and maybe you've noticed the people. Now, here's something you probably haven't noticed, and that is the stripy bits alongside here. Now, the stripy bits, that's what I want to talk about next. Now, it's one thing to create a sensational, entertaining display. But if you're going to do that, you might as well just create Disneyland. You might as well just create theater. Uh, the sensational display wasn't good enough for Waterhouse Hawkins. He wanted to teach, too. So show is one thing. Teach is quite another. And the teaching element... The, those particular illustrations, if you go to the park today, you'll see something like this. 
the geological illustrations is what they're called. And they're meant to be, a, a, well, from our point of view, an image from a textbook. It's meant to show you about the layers of rock in geology. It's, it's meant to show you various geological features, like a fault line. It's meant to show you geological processes, like what's called uplift, where the center section has been uplifted, pushed up. And so you're supposed to stand here with your kids or with your parents and stare at that and, and learn something. And it's in the process of learning that legitimates the enterprise. It's, it's the idea that we didn't just go and it, we just didn't see a, a sensational display. We learned something too. And that's part of what Waterhouse Hawkins is up to. Uh, you can learn uh, an awful lot of economic geology from this particular space. Building stone, uh, gravels, the black stuff is coal. There's lead seams, there's all kinds of bits in there. Uh, if you don't want to know any geology, you certainly can walk away and say, gosh, there's economically useful stuff in rocks. If that's what's happened to you, then you've done what Waterhouse Hawkins wants. Uh, a, a bit of, uh, if, you're standing to, if you're standing staring at this in the park and you look to your left, you'll certainly see this looks like a cave and that's what it is. This is a constructed bit of the entertainment. It's instructional because we were supposed to go in and we were supposed to see a couple of different kinds of lead veins. We were supposed to see British mining illustrated with Davy lamps and other things. We were supposed to walk out feeling, being educated about uh, British economic geology. And Waterhouse Hawkins, in the construction of the sculptures, he participated in the building of this part of the exhibition too. It all comes together. Waterhouse Hawkins didn't, didn't do this bit, but he certainly participated in the bigger, bigger picture, as it were. Quickly now, uh, one, more, one more point. Now, if this is economically useful, I said there's three things Waterhouse want, Hawkins wanted. One was just to wow you. The second bit, he wanted to teach you. And the third bit, he wanted to philosophize. Philosophize. One thing these, were, these rocks were supposed to do was supposed to get you to think about time. Think about time. And if you took the idea that the, if you take the, the analogy that the, the history of life is a book, a book of many chapters, uh, one layer of rock, that's a chapter, another layer of rock, that's another chapter, another layer of rock, that's a chapter. What's the story? What's the book about? Is it a book like an encyclopedia that has one thing followed by another, followed by another just in some al alphabetical order? Is the book like a novel where there's a plot, where the plot begins at the beginning and ends at the end? Does it lead to a climax? Does, what's the story? Are there characters that live throughout the whole story? Or, do, or is it like a Dickens novel where there's a bunch of different characters, it's really hard to keep track of things, and, and maybe there's a point, I'm not quite sure, but I'm just going to keep reading. So Waterhouse Hawkins wanted you to look at the, at the rocks themselves, see the layers, and ask, you know, what is the story? Now this brings the third big point about the dinosaur. So in order to wow you and to teach you, he also wanted to help you philosophize. When you go to Crystal Palace and you see all the sculptors, and they are more or less, not all of them are in the place that he wanted them to be, but they're pretty much all in the same spot. But the one thing to notice is 
they're not randomly distributed about the park. They're put in a certain order, and that order is a time order. One, two, three, four. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. It doesn't particularly matter for our purposes what the, what the, uh, layer, what the chapters are, but the primary island, the secondary island, the tertiary island, the quaternary island, that's one, two, three, four. These things are laid out in order of time. And so Waterhouse Hawkins wanted us to philosophize about time and to look at the book that is the history of life and ask ourselves, is there a plot to all this? And so the Crystal Palace dinosaurs and so on are put out in a very particular order. From the, ver- from the amphibian's conquest of the land to the age of marine reptiles to the age of dinosaurs in the secondary period to the beginning of the age of mammals in the tertiary period up to the Ice Age in the Quaternary period. And then, one, two, three, four, primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, one, two, three, four. I think what you were supposed to do, this is the last one on display, I thought we were supposed to turn left, go back up the hill, and and look at age five, the age of, of humanity. One, two, three, four, five, five. The Crystal Palace Glasshouse is step five in this story. Now, very quickly, because we, we, need to, we need to get you guys back to work one way or another. Waterhouse Hawkins was no fool. He worked incredibly hard to get the statues done in a proper way. And there's a lot of people who scoff at how inaccurate these things are. And trust me, they're really awful. They're, they're, they're wildly inaccurate. But they're still pretty fun. But if you think from a historian's point of view, what he had to work with, He had a piece like this, which is the fossil remains, and basically you look at the teeth, that's the business end of a very serious beast. No surprise when he went to put flesh on the bone. He started to make it like a bear because he thought those looked like bearish teeth. He put claws on the organism. He imagined certain things and so on. Waterhouse Hawkins really did think it through. If he happened to have got it wrong, I think we can cut the guy a little bit of slack one way or another. A couple of things that he did, very clever sculptural tricks, and this is where you can be the most clever person in your group when you go to the Crystal Palace to look at the dinosaurs. So you can be pretty clever when you look at the Mosasaur here, and you can say, you know what? I bet you he's hiding something, this breaching Mosasaur. And in fact, he really is hiding something because the Mosasaur, the only thing that was known about the fossil was the head. And so very cleverly, he buried the rest of the body so he didn't have to speculate one way or another. The most most fabulous disaster of the sculpting is this, Dicynodon. And uh, what was known in the fossils was just the front of the beak and the tusk. The tusk was a bit weird, but when he thought about when he thought about reptiles and amphibians, which reptiles and amphibians have beaky kind of fronts? Well, turtles and tortoises. So that's probably what this thing was. And so when he put the flesh on the bones, he headed in a particular direction. Oops. Um, the iguanodon story. I'll I'll I'll. I'll 
I'll, I'll make one more point, but this, but I'll, this is the last dinosaur I'll talk about. The iguanodon story. I put this picture up because one of my favorites combinations, the iguanodons, um, and and the reason I put them up is because they remind me of my two sisters. Um, uh, uh, Waterhouse Hawkins um, was no fool. He spoke to a lot of he spoke to a lot of experts, and the experts didn't always agree. And so when he made these two iguanodons, um, you can see a bit of that disagreement manifested in the sculpting. If you look at the front iguanodon, and if you were to ask, if I were to ask you, what does this iguanodon look like? You might say lizard. It looks like an iguana. But if you look at the one in the background, and I would ask you, what does that look like? Now, how many of us would say lizard? Now, it's your turn to yell out something. If you were to yell out what the thing in the back looks like most, what would you say? A bear, a rhino. Rhino, for me, is a pretty good guess. That's what, that's what I would guess, rhino. So here, this is the same organism represented in two different forms. What is Waterhouse Hawkins doing? Well, one of the experts he spoke with said iguanodons look like a big iguanas. And one of the experts he spoke with said iguanodons don't look like iguanas, they look like rhinos. And here's an example where the sculptor didn't decide amongst the experts. He just made one of each <laughs> and let you decide. They remind me of my two sisters because one is a banker and the other one's a hippie. And so you couldn't be two different groups between the two. Anyway, the last thing I'll say before we get to some questions, I think is the plan. Um, the dinosaurs are in big trouble. They're really big trouble right now. And uh, just by looking at a bit of the geological illustration, you can see the problem. Um, the problem is that with all, in this age of austerity, people have stopped paying attention. The last, the last serious use, uh, conservation of the dinosaurs was about 10 or 12 years ago. And the dinosaurs are falling apart. And so what I wanted to do was encourage you uh, not, I'm not going to go for your wallet, but the thing I'd like to encourage you to do is, is to participate. Um, go to the website. The Crystal Palace Community Stakeholders Group is, is one of many uh, uh, citizen action groups associated with the park. But if you just Google um, Crystal Palace Park and Community, you'll get these groups. And if, and if you find a way to write to one of the local councillors and say, gosh, I think the falling apart of the iguanodon like this is a really bad thing and somebody ought to do something about it, that would be really helpful because that would, that would encourage legislatures to step in so that the teleosaur tail, which is now disastrously ruined, this is not done by vandalism, it's just weather and, and they need some help. Okay, let me wrap this up and give you a chance to ask some questions. First of all, I want you to walk away remembering three things about Crystal Palace. One, it's there and you can go for free. Um, it sits on top of a, uh, the, the glass house sat at top of a hill. There is a hill. God help you if you have to walk up it. So there is a hill. The dinosaurs are at the bottom of the hill, and they're at the bottom of the hill on purpose. You're welcome to keep that postcard. And when you do, uh, while you do keep that postcard, just remember that the dinosaurs in the picture aren't the isn't the only bit about the dinosaurs in the picture. There's the geological illustrations. There's the sequence of things and so much more. If you remember that Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, the sculptor, was no fool, when you go walk around, I think you'll take away a much better experience 
of that being there. Anyway, thanks you all for your time. Thanks for coming out for lunch, and uh, we'll take some questions now. There's somebody coming with a microphone, so if you hold off on your question. What material are the sculptures made of? I'm so glad you asked that. Right. Okay, I was going to push this book, and I was going to show you about this. So what's inside? Now, boy, it's going to be hard for you to see. I was so lucky to get onto the island uh, recently, legally get onto the island, and I poked my head into the, into the belly of the um, megalosaurus, and this is what it looks like. This is what it's made out of. It's made out of uh, brick, and you, it's very hard to see, but there's an iron frame inside, so it's hollow. And on the outside, it's a concrete face that's been press-molded. Yeah, those are the big ones. The little ones are made out of concrete. Some of them have been redone, and they're made out of fiberglass and so on. But thank you for, answer, for asking that question. Well done. Other, any other questions? There's one there. Just wait for the microphone, I think. That's a... um, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gone to all this trouble of creating the, the, the dinosaurs unless there was a public interest, public market for this, and enthusiasm about dinosaurs amongst the public. Where did all this come from? Dinosaurs are cool. Come on. Yeah. The, yeah. Excellent question. The, uh, so, so, so what's the interest in the dinosaurs? I think what you've got here is you've got Waterhouse Hawkins seizing on something, particularly the British Museum is, is, is rich at the time of fossil material from the Lyme Regis and from Whitby, so the marine reptiles like the plesiosaurs and so on. And so we can go there and we can see fully articulated, fully put together skeletons of these things. And I think that fires up the imagination. But the problem with that is a lot of paleontology, as paleontologists know full well, you so rarely find whole organisms seen. What you get is bits and pieces. You don't even know if what puzzle the pieces fit to. And I think for Waterhouse Hawkins, what he's managed to do is he's managed to capture the imaginative element of dinosaurs and other prehistoric material and bring it to life. That's something that's really important. The other thing is to, to remember is dinosaurs aren't the most interesting bits of the geology in the 1850s because the, the big dinosaurs that are in our minds, like T-Rex and Diplodocus and so on, they're not discovered for another 20, 30 years. They're, those are the American dinosaurs, but the British dinosaur, the British fossil material is much more like pterodactyls and plesiosaurs and so on. And so the dinosaur bit is a bit of a modern emphasis on, on something really rather different. It's the plesiosaurs that would have captured people's attention, the Loch Ness monster kind of stuff. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Thank you very much um, to Professor Joe Kane for coming along to talk today. And thanks everybody for coming.